You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. The power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Roots. It's good to be here. I really appreciate that introduction. It does feel familiar and like being a part of an extended family, so it's always good to be here with you this morning. When I told my wife the topic for what I was preaching on, she didn't exactly laugh out loud, but I could tell she thought that was comical that I was preaching on rest because this is not a strength of mine. Uh, I would argue not a strength of ours either. Um, but something that we are regularly practicing and learning more about. So we thought, no better way to practice rest than to bring our three young kids to California for a week, because that is extremely restful. We are hoping to have fun uh, this week. We're very excited to be here. Thankfully, this is not a sermon about my inferiority to rest, but in God's supremacy, in Christ's supremacy in rest. And so I'm Excited to share with you what I've been learning, what has been challenging and convicting me this last week. Would you stand with me if you're able as we read from Matthew chapter 11? Starting in verse 28, we're going to hear from Jesus himself. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of God. Please have a seat. Well, for those of you who are uh, musically inclined, you will recognize this symbol here, which will magically appear, there it is, as a quarter note. Those of you less musically inclined, just looks like a a funny uh, symbol. You'll also recognize this other squiggly line here as a quarter rest. What's interesting is that these symbols didn't always exist. Someone had to come up with these at some point. And I learned recently that Before composers had these symbols, the length of a rest in music was determined by the acoustics of a building. So a room like this that kind of echoes a bit, as the the monks would chant and sing, they would pause so that the next line wasn't drowned out by the previous line. And so the effect was to synchronize the singers and create a kind of natural pause to mediate uh, and to reflect on what was happening in the song. So uh, the notes that are, the the quarter note is a symbol for sound, and the quarter rest is a symbol for silence. And there's this combination between the two. There's an interplay between sound and silence. The point here is that, that rest has a purpose, that rest serves a purpose. And so as we consider in God's word, what is the purpose of rest? What is God's purpose for rest. We're going to look through 
some parts of the, the biblical story, some highlights through the biblical story to understand what is God's purpose for rest. So we're going to first begin at the, at the very beginning. This, I'm a biblical theologian at heart, and so I love to go back to the beginning of the story in Genesis and consider what was God's original purpose and intent for all things. So we're going to zoom in and consider what is God's purpose for rest. So we read in Genesis 2, starting in verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, I'm not here to argue whether these were seven literal days or not, or how did God create all things, but the, the look at the rhythm that God is establishing here. What he is establishing is that there's a period of work and there's a period of rest, and that there's an interplay between the two of those things. We have to remember that this is before sin, sin enters into God's creation. Work and rest both preceded sin. And therefore, neither is inherently sinful. Now, some of us, we have jobs, we do work that feels like it's inherently sinful. It is hard. It is difficult. We have to remember that the the difficulty, the, the futility of our work came after sin enters into creation. The same is true about rest. We can rest in all kinds of ways that are not healthy, that are not good, that are not helpful. But that is an effect of the fall, of sin entering into God's creation. What sin tends to do is function like a parasite. It attaches itself to something good and bends it toward death and destruction. And so that is true of things like work and rest. Sin attaches itself and bends it, twists it, distorts it from God's original purpose and intention. So what God is doing here is establishing that rest is good. It's a part of his good creation. Because he is blessing that seventh day and making it holy, which means it was a day set apart from other days. It was special. It was unique. It was distinct. There's something rich in the meaning of that seventh day. Now, Unlike us, God wasn't resting on the seventh day because he was tired. It wasn't like him kicking off his shoes and putting him up and uh, having a cold beverage. He wasn't just simply resting because he was tired. He was resting, I believe, to establish a rhythm of rest. Because remember, we are made in God's image. So if we are made in his image and he is a God who does not rest, then it would stand to reason. We may draw from that the conclusion that we aren't supposed to rest either. But God is a God who rests. And so he's, he's calling us to be like him and to rest like him. And what God is teaching us is that rest can serve many purposes. So here are a few of those purposes that we might consider. Rest can be reflective. I do have the sense that God steps back and looks at his creation and uses that seventh day as an opportunity to reflect, to consider 
all that he has made. We, we see that he declares everything he made is good. And so part of that seventh day is a day to step back and consider what is the work that we have done. We need that time and that space to reflect. And in that reflection, that can lead us to a place of reverence. We look at what God has made and we to see the, the, the blessing of it, we see the, the greatness of it, we see the holiness of it, it leads us to reverence. So one of the reasons why we might also rest is that we have time and space to reflect, to take a step back and to revere God for what he has done. Another reason to rest would be restraint. There's a kind of holding back. God could have made more. God could have done more. But he does what he intends to do in six days and then decides, I'm not going to do any more. What God's actually doing in that is leaving space for us to take his good creation and make something out of it. He's wanting us to, to make something with what he has made. So he doesn't do it all for us. He does it. It's almost like he gets it started and says, all right, take it from here. What can you make with what I have made? So there's a restraint. And that's true for us as well. We can always do more. We can always get more done. We can always accomplish more tasks. So resting is a way for us to be restrained, to hold back and say, even though I could do more, does not necessarily mean I should do more. So there's a restraint, a holding back in our rest. There's also a letting go, a relinquishing in rest, a giving over uh, entrusting to others. And that's what God is doing. He's setting a pattern of entrusting his creation, what he has made to others. He says to Adam and Eve, now make something, be fruitful and multiply out of what I have made. So there's a, a letting go. We too have to let go. We have to entrust that others are going to take what we have started and they're going to continue it. When we take a vacation from work, when we take time off, we're entrusting that others are going to keep going. Sometimes that can be really challenging to know that things keep going when we're not here. I imagine for, for Dylan and Malia, as they come back next week, there's a sense of, wait, you guys are you're still going without us? We, we're, we're behind. We're three months behind. There's a sense of letting that go and, and recognizing it's going to continue apart from us. Rest can also be relaxing, refreshing, and renewing. Now, again, God is not tired, but there is a sense of teaching us that we are limited and that we are need, in need of rest to maintain and to rebuild our energy. So rest can be a way to relax, refresh, and renew our energy so we can continue to do the work he has called us to. And, and rest can also be, and maybe this is the best part, rest can be recreational. There's an entertainment value. We are to have fun. We're to enjoy things. If we're only working, we can miss out on that. So we need to rest in order to recreate, to to entertain ourselves, to enjoy God's creation. But lastly, and this is really the, the main thrust of what I want to focus on today, is I believe God established a rhythm of rest because he wanted to reinforce our relationship. Rest is relational. And God's call to us is to trust him and to obey him for all that he provides. That we would trust him by resting. That when we rest, 
that we would trust that he is going to provide. So in, in establishing a rhythm of rest, God is, is reinforcing the relationship he desires with us. He desires for us to be dependent on him, to rely solely and exclusively on him. And so in a rhythm of rest, that helps to reinforce our dependence on God. So he's waiting to see, are you going to trust me in your rest? Are you going to obey my call to rest? Sadly, the biblical story is uh, mounting evidence that we do not trust and obey God. We do not rest well, regardless of God's uh, efforts to call us into this rhythm of rest. So we fast forward a little bit in the, in the biblical story to the Exodus story. One of my favorite uh, parts of the, of the Bible is we understand how did this play out with God's people. So in, in, ex, in the Exodus story, the people of Israel have been enslaved for over 400 years. They've been conditioned to literally work themselves to death. And now God is trying to recondition them to renew their relationship with him and their relationship with work and rest. One of the ways God does this is by providing their daily bread. And I don't mean he provides a recipe like, hey, take these ingredients, mix them together, and you'll get some good bread. Now, in spite of their grumbling and their desire to go back to Egypt, where absurdly they believe it was better and easier for them, he chooses to miraculously provide the daily bread by causing it to rain down from heaven. He is so committed to their rest. He says, I don't want you to even have to prepare food. I want you to just be able to go out and gather the food that I provide so that you can rest. And so we read in Exodus 16, uh, verse 19, Moses says to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. So go out and gather what you need, bring it back, and that's your daily provision. It says in verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. Real appetizing. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. So in this moment, God is teaching us something about rest. So first God is saying that no hoarding is allowed. Gather what you need. So everyone eats to the fill. No one's going hungry. Everyone has exactly what they need. Some need more, some need less, but everyone has what they need. What they're not allowed to do is gather more for the next day. They're not allowed to hoard it and out of fear that God will stop providing what he's provided, that they could have a a storehouse uh, full of bread. No, he only is willing to provide them their daily bread. Gather what you need each day. What God is trying to teach them is to trust his provision. He will provide for tomorrow. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. I'm going to continue to provide this daily bread each day. And so for 40 years, wandering through the wilderness, God is providing. It's a lot of bread for God to provide on a daily basis. Maybe a million or so people, but God is providing it on a daily basis. He will provide for them. What God is also trying to show them is that work without rest stinks. Amen? When we work and don't rest, it stinks. It begins to 
uh, take on and distort and mess with our, our, our enjoyment of work, over time, it becomes unbearable to us. And so what God is trying to show them is that rest is good. It is pleasing. It is pleasant. So God is trying to demonstrate this rhythm of rest on a daily basis, but he also continues from the creation account this weekly rhythm of rest. So what God does is interesting. On the sixth day, he provides a double portion of the bread. And they're to gather up that double portion. So on the seventh day, not only do they not have to prepare the bread, they don't have to go out and gather it. They have enough for the seventh day. So that's God's uh, provision to them, to have a a, a day of rest from even gathering food that fell from the sky. They don't have to do that on the seventh day because he provides that double portion. And, And God says, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath, to the Lord. So he provides for them on that sixth day. But sadly, there are people who went out to gather food on the seventh day and they found none. And they were shocked. Like, where's the bread? God had instructed them saying, gather a, a double portion on the sixth day because on the seventh day, it's not coming. I've given you what you need for that seventh day. Our struggle to rest is ultimately a struggle to trust. That's what it comes down to, is we are struggling to trust God. In response, God gives us opportunities to rest so that we can learn to trust him and his provision. Consider the contrast. Pharaoh worked the Israelites to death, demanding that they meet their daily quota of bricks without providing straw for them. God, on the other hand, gives the Israelites new life. He redeems them out of slavery and gives them a life of freedom and relationship with him. But he demands that they rest every seven days and trust him to provide. That is God's demand. Demand to rest and to trust his provision. Well, seeing that they struggled with this, uh, this command, this demand to rest, God actually weaves it into his law. And so we see rest in God's law. Creating a rhythm of rest was so important to him that of all the 613 laws that God created, rest made the top 10 list. Now, it's kind of funny that God had to make a law for us to obey to rest, but he knew we were so bad at it that we were going to struggle so much with rest that we, he couldn't trust us to rest on our own that he actually had to build it into his laws. So in Exodus 20, we read, God says to remember the, seventh, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God is continuing this rhythm of rest, this daily rhythm, this weekly rhythm. Just as he made the seventh day 
holy and blessed it. God is also blessing and making the Sabbath day holy. It is a day set apart from all other days. It is a day to the Lord, but for everyone. That God is clear on that. It is also a day that is special, unique, and, and distinct. But it's interesting that he would have to make this a law for us to follow. Why would that be necessary for him to create a law about rest? Well, if, as we said earlier, our struggle to rest stems from our struggle to trust, then God would need to be clear that rest is not optional. It is essential. If work has been cursed as a result of sin, then rest, too, will be impacted. So God must give us a clear understanding of what a right relationship with work and with rest looks like. Now, I find it interesting. God does not go as far as giving us a bedtime. He doesn't say, okay, 10 o'clock, time time for bed. He entrusts us to make that decision, and some of us are better at making that decision than others, but he doesn't give us a bedtime. He does, however, give us bodies that eventually will naturally go toward rest. We just will get to a point where we just can't endure any longer. So he, get, he does give us limitations, built-in limitations. And he gives us night, which is meant to be a natural time of rest. You can't see outside. You can't work in the field. You can't do things. So he's giving us time to rest. But it's interesting if we looked at the, the various ways that we have tried to, to counter that, to expand our day. We, we live as if we're able to go for 24 hours straight. But God is trying to show us you have limits. You have limitations, and it's good for you to rest. But in lieu of a bedtime, he does give us a command to rest one day a week. He then goes on to give the Israelites instructions for a Sabbath year and a year of Jubilee. The Sabbath year follows a similar pattern to the the weekly Sabbath. Every seven years, they were to stop working in the field and and let it rest. They were trying to, he was trying to create a rhythm of rest, not only for his people, but also his creation. But he uses similar language for the Sabbath year. It's It's a rest for the land. It's a Sabbath rest to the Lord. And it is solemn. God is trying to communicate that he is serious about rest. That's why we hear that word solemn in in association with the Sabbath. It is serious, and God is sincere about his call to rest. Because it is to the Lord, that's why we rest, we rest to the Lord, but in the Sabbath year, it is for the land. God cares about his creation and the good stewardship of his creation, including us. He wants us to be good stewards of our bodies, of our lives, and all that he has made. And so he knows that good stewardship is going to include not only working hard, but also resting. In addition to that, God created a year of jubilee every 50 years, so if you do the math, 7 times 7, 49, that 50th year is a year of jubilee. It's consecrated. We're to consecrate that 50 year. It's, again, that language of sacred, holy, set apart. Every 50 years, this was a special time of rest. And what that included was proclaiming liberty 
throughout the land to all its inhabitants. So whether someone was enslaved unjustly or enslaved to work off a debt, everyone who was indentured or enslaved in some way was to be set free. That's God's provision for social justice, his desire to see those who are oppressed, who are marginalized, who are without resources to go free. Rest is a way for God to demonstrate justice because no rest is unjust. So rest is a way for us to practice God's call to justice. They were also to return property that they had bought or traded that didn't originally belong to them because rest is meant to be an act of generosity. We're to be generous in our rest. They're to not uh, sow or reap from the field, but eat what the field produces. Again, entrusting God's provision. You can imagine this 50th year coming up. They're like, do we have enough? We're going to have to make it through an entire year. Do we have enough for that year? And God's again calling them to trust his provision, that he's provided through the field, through his means, all that they need for that year of Jubilee. It's meant to be a year of celebration and reflection, but also about trusting God in that year. So what you can see here is that God cares about creating rhythms of rest, daily rhythms, weekly rhythms, annual rhythms, regular rhythms of rest. So the practical question for you to leave with today is, what do those rhythms of rest look like in your life? What does it look like for you to rest on a daily basis or weekly basis or annual basis? What are the benchmarks of rest for you in your life? What, do you, what would you point to as those rhythms of rest? Well, all of these rhythms of rest are the backdrop uh, for Jesus when he arrives on the scene. When he enters into creation itself, Jesus knows that these rhythms of rest have been established, that they have either been honored or dishonored throughout history. And and Jesus is not coming to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's going to show us what does it look like to rest well. Now, much of what I've learned about uh, resting in Jesus comes from uh, Dana Orland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Some of you may have read that. It's a great resource. But Orland is focusing more on the heart of Jesus. What motivates him to treat sinners and sufferers the way that he does? I want to look at the same passage that he draws that phrase gentle and lowly from, but I want to consider what is it that Jesus is offering us out of his gentle and lowly heart? What is he, what is he offering to us when he says these words? So first thing that we want to notice in this passage in Matthew 11 starting verse 28, is the invitational language of Jesus' words. Come. Come. It's a, it's a small, simple word, but Jesus in that word is offering an invitation. Come to me. If we, I, I was thinking about it earlier this week. If we had been following God's rhythms of rest, if we had been faithful as a people throughout history to follow God's instructions to to establish these rhythms of rest in our lives, Jesus would have no need to make this invitation. He wouldn't need to say, come and rest. He wouldn't need to invite us to this because it would be something we were already doing. We'd be like, yeah, Jesus, we are doing that. But the reality is 
that when Jesus appears, he knows that we do not rest well. He knows as he looked around at his people that one of the things that they struggled with and suffered with is that they did not rest well. So this is an appealing invitation to us to come. Like any invitation, this one requires a response. We can either accept the invitation, we can decline it, or we can ignore it. But one way or another, we will respond to Jesus' invitation. What are some of the reasons that we would come up with to decline or ignore an invitation like this, to come and rest? In other words, why do we struggle to receive rest? Well, one of the reasons we struggle is with guilt. We believe that it is wrong to rest. Now, that can come from all kinds of different places. That's something that we can be taught growing up. Maybe we had parents or families that didn't believe that rest was good. And so rest was seen as idle or lazy. And so when we would try to rest, we were told or taught it was wrong to rest. So when we struggle to rest, it's partly out of a a guilt. We feel like we're doing something wrong when we rest. And so Jesus' invitation would feel like doing something wrong. Come and rest. That, that, I can't do that. That's, that's wrong. It's not good for me to rest. So part of our struggle is with guilt. We feel like we're doing something wrong. There's, there's more we should be doing. And by not doing it, we're doing something wrong. And we don't know what to do with that guilt. Because here's Jesus making this invitation, and we feel guilty for resting. But another reason we might struggle to receive rest is shame. Closely related, maybe a a, a second cousin to guilt, but not the same thing. Guilt tells us that we've done something wrong or bad. Shame tells us something is wrong or bad with us. That we are the problem. Not what we've done or what's been done to us, but that we ourselves are bad. And so shame would tell us that we've we've not done enough. We're, we're not good enough. We need to do more to make up for the bad or the wrong that we are. And so we struggle to rest and to receive rest because we believe we need to do something to make up for who we are. We're not enough. We're not good enough. And so we need to continue to work and strive to be something better. This is complicated for us because we do want to grow. We want to mature. We want to change. We want to get better at the things we're passionate about. But if we don't build into that a rhythm of rest, it's sometimes because we we feel like if we stop working, that that there's something wrong with us and that we're we're not going to be enough. That creeps into fears that we have. Now, guilt and shame often stir in us fears. Fears of being found out, fears of being caught, fears of what will others think. So we worry what will happen if we stop working, including how will people treat us? How will people treat us if we rest and if we, we pause from work? How will others treat us in those moments? And so we, we feel fear about rest. It feels unsettling. I, I sat next to a woman on the plane coming down yesterday who struggled to rest. She was fidgeting with the... the uh, vent. She was, you know, rearranging her seat. She just couldn't sit still. And I think there was some nervous energy for her, but uh, just maybe being on a plane, but just the inability to rest. There was fears that were likely stirring in her. She just couldn't sit still. 
And sometimes we feel that, that nervous energy, and so we struggle to rest. But we also sometimes see busyness as a badge of honor that we wear proudly around. This is what Brene Brown says when she's understanding uh, shame and and what uh, motivates us to do what we do. She describes wearing busyness as a badge of honor, a sense of outworking others, to make ourselves look good, to, to feel good about who we are. We also wear it as a plate of armor to protect ourselves from being vulnerable and dealing with our feelings. We're afraid that if we slow down and stop, what will we feel? What will we think in that moment? So we distract ourselves. We stay busy. We're like a shark that can't stop because we're afraid we're going to die. We have to keep in movement, constant motion, because we're afraid of what will happen if we, if we stop. And our American culture, our Western culture, is particularly guilty of this. Different researchers have found that the, the American workers are notorious. In comparison to workers around the world, we do not rest well. One uh, Gallup report from 2014 estimated that the average worker in the U.S. works 47 hours a week, which when I read that number, I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's, that doesn't seem like a lot. But in comparison to other countries, it's one of the highest in the world. So if that number doesn't shock you like it didn't shock me, there's a reason for that. There's, there's a problem there because other countries look at that and say that's overworking. It's overextending beyond a normal work week. Uh, one um, report that the website Glassdoor completed said that the average U.S. employee who receives paid vacation only takes about 54% of paid, paid vacation. Not unpaid, paid vacation. We only take about 54% on average of our allotted time per year. We're leaving on the table work, or, or time rather, that our employer, employers have offered to us. They're, they're letting us use that. It's ours. It belongs to us, and we're not using it because we feel that busyness is more important. Another survey found that one in five Americans, uh, only one in five rather, spends lunch away from their desk. Four out of five people eat lunch at their desks at their workplace. Guilty as charged. We also don't take breaks throughout the day in comparison to uh, other, other countries. And we're notorious for reading and sending emails after work hours, including weekends. Now, what's scary to me is I read those things and I'm thinking, yeah, so what's the big deal? Doesn't, doesn't everyone do that? But the other countries would look at that and say, what is wrong with you, Americans? What is wrong with you? Why are you doing this to yourself? We should be disturbed by it. We should be troubled by it. Some are repulsed by this. They think, what, what are they living for? The reality is we're, we're living busy lives. We're defying God's call to rest. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, including the ones I've mentioned. But some of that is our pride. We want rest on our own terms. We'll, we'll rest when we're ready. The problem is we're never ready. We feel like we have to do more, earn more, achieve more, accomplish more. It's always about more. And so we want rest on our own terms. And God is the one who sets the terms. God is saying, you need daily rest. You need weekly rest. You need annual rest. And we're like, yeah, yeah, when when I get to it. So we have that flippancy of a teenager who doesn't want to listen to their parent. We don't want to hear this. 
So we want rest on our own terms, and it's, it's doing damage to us. When we don't rest as God designed us to and called us to, we are doing harm to ourselves. So Jesus says, come, rest. That should be the, it's like, oh, thank you. Thank you for that offer. Thank you for that invitation. But the truth is, we resist. But it's not only an invitation. It's also an incarnate invitation. He says, come to me. Now, this isn't like when I say to my kids, come to me. Come here. Come here now. No, this is, this is a welcome, come to me. Come, come here. Come here. Come to me. That is the direction that Jesus points us to. Come to me. This is not only an invitation for rest. This is an invitation for relationship. I believe that all along, God has wanted us to rest so we can develop our relationship with him. Portland points out that the reason that Jesus comes as gentle and lowly is to make himself accessible to us. We have access to him. We can, we can come to him. I mean, when we stop and consider who is inviting us, we have no right or reason to come to him. But he has made himself accessible. He is gentle and lowly. So when he says, come, we're coming to one who is gentle and lowly. He gets down on our level. I believe that Jesus worked. His dad was a carpenter. He probably did some hard labor. His ministry was hard. He worked hard. But he got, So he got down on our level and understood what is it like to work in this fallen world. He knows what that work is like. But he then calls us to come to him to find rest. So yes, rest is important, but it's not the point. It's a byproduct of being close to Jesus and in relationship with him. When we're near him, when we come to him, we find rest. We are full of rest. So when we are restful, we are full of rest in his presence. That's what new creation is going to be like. I believe we will still work and work hard in new creation. There's going to be a lot of work to do, but we will also rest and be restful because we'll be in God's presence. But this is also a place where Jesus' invitation puts his inclusivity on display. He says, come to me all, all. Anyone working hard, anyone heavy laden, come to me. All of you who are heavy laden, who labor hard. So regardless of your vocation or your station in life, come to me. Jesus doesn't compare your labor or burdens to someone else's. He doesn't say, if you've worked this hard, come to me, or if you work this hard, come to me. He says, all, everyone, come to me. There isn't a threshold that we must reach. There isn't a bar that we have to, to uh, reach. He says, come to me. Better yet, better yet, you don't have to accomplish your task first or eliminate your burden before you come to me. He actually invites us to come to him with our burdens, with our unaccomplished tasks. Jesus is inviting us to come to him unfinished, weary, and worn out. In essence, Jesus is saying, 
if you're a mess, come to me. And if 2020 taught us anything, it's that we are all a mess. We're a mess. And Jesus says, come to me. All of you messy people who are laboring hard, who are burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. Now this rest is more than just rest, uh, physical rest. This is an internal rest. So if we accept this invitation, Jesus is going to give us rest for our souls. Not just a nice cushy vacation, not just time off. He's going to give us rest for our souls. This rest is a gift of grace and mercy. We didn't earn it, and we sure don't deserve it. This isn't a rest for good behavior. This isn't a rest because of what we've accomplished. This is, this is rest that Jesus is generously giving to us. And it's a, an offer of an exchange. What do we give to him? We give him our burdens, and he gives us his rest. What a good deal. What a good deal that we are getting was we give him our burdens and he gives us his rest. So while we might experience rest for our bodies, um, it might, that might not happen in this life. Comforts like taking a nap, enjoying a snack, experiencing the beauty of God's creation, going on vacation, all those things can be restful. But Jesus is offering something far greater, a different kind of rest. So the analogy he uses is this yoke. This is the part of this passage that I've always struggled with until Dane Ortland helped me understand what is the offer Jesus is making. When he says, you know, my my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What's he talking about? Well, a yoke is the cross beam that the, the oxen would usually have on their backs to pull the heavy load. And what Jesus is saying is you all have a heavy load It's a heavy burden. Your yoke is heavy. So when we use that phrase, heavy heart, when you have a heavy heart, you're weighed down by the burden that you are carrying. Your yoke is heavy. I feel like you're dragging all this weight. And Jesus sees that and knows that and says, hey, why don't we change yokes? I'll take the heavy one and you take mine. Mine's easy. Mine is light. What Jesus is ultimately offering, and and, and in this imagery, using the language of what you give to me, I'm going to put on my back, and I'm going to carry it. And so the cross is the the perfect picture of what that actually is. The cross beam of the cross is the yoke that Jesus puts on himself. That's the heavy burden that he takes on. He takes it all on. All of our sin, all of our suffering, he puts it on his back. He's got broad shoulders. He's going to take that weight, and he's going to offer us an easy and light yoke. Well, Dane Orland describes it as when you're drowning and someone throws you a life preserver. If you're drowning and someone throws you a life preserver, you're not like, hey, this, is, this isn't fit. This isn't my size. Or this is, I'm sorry, this is, a really, this is burdensome. I don't really want to put this around my neck. This is too, too hard for me. No, if you're drowning and someone throws you a life preserver, it's like, yes, thank you. This is exactly what I need. We're grabbing onto it, holding onto it for dear life. It's a welcome relief that we would embrace. Thank you to the one who would throw this to me. I can now experience whatever comes my way clinging to this life preserver. That's what Jesus is offering here. 
hey, you seem to be drowning. You've got, you're overwhelmed. This is too much. You can't bear this burden. So here, take this life preserver. Hold on for dear life. In essence, Jesus is that life preserver. That's what he is offering to us is himself. Hold on to me. I know you're burdened. I know you're drowning. Hold on to me because my burden, my yoke is light. It's easy. The question is, and this is what got Jesus in trouble, so to speak, is who is he to offer to give us rest for our soul? It's the equivalent of Jesus forgiving sin. The Pharisees are like, who do you think you are forgiving people of sin? Who do you think you are giving people rest for their soul? Well, in Matthew 12, Jesus goes on. There's this scene where he and his disciples are walking through the field, and they're hungry, and so they're grabbing some grain on, uh, and eating it. So the trouble is it was the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are lurking around just trying to ch- uh, catch Jesus and his disciples doing something wrong. They're like, aha, caught you red-handed. I knew you guys were up to no good. You don't even follow the, the Sabbath law. You don't even obey the Sabbath law. Jesus says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, do you have any idea who you're talking to? talking to the son of man god's own son he is the lord of the sabbath it's reminding them the sabbath was made for you you're not meant to serve the sabbath this is for you this is provision for you jesus is claiming that he is greater than the temple which was god's dwelling place on earth with his people jesus is claiming that he is the embodiment of the bread of the presence who nourishes our souls and fills us full He is the bread from heaven, the daily provision from God. This is God's provision for us put on display. Not just bread coming to nourish us for a day, but the bread of life to give us rest for our souls. What Jesus' life tells us is that there will always be people who oppose our rest. There will always be reasons that we would be reluctant to rest. But if we believe that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who gives us rest, that when he comes, he calls to us, come to me, we will run to him. We will run to him with reckless abandon. Yes, I'm in need of rest. In essence, that's what we do when we take communion. We are once again running to Jesus to say, yes, I need rest that you offer. The rest that he offers is himself his very body, his very blood. So as we partake in communion today, that's an opportunity for us to run to him, to accept the invitation, come to me. All, all who are burdened, all who labor, and I will give you rest.